And all of God's people say, come Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jeremy and team. I think this is part of that CD, right? That's part of the CD that's outside. No? Sorry about that. I thought I heard it before, but uh, this must be brand new. You know, through the years uh, in my preaching, and those who have been hearing me long enough know that occasionally I would make a reference to biblical paradoxes, uh, and I talk about uh, the paradoxes in the Bible. And few times I said, uh, one day I'm going to dedicate a whole message, I'm going to preach a whole message on these biblical paradoxes. Well, today is the day. Today is the day, and I cannot wait to preach about the paradox of Christmas. But in reality, I really have never seldom started a sermon with a definition. But you have to understand the definition if you're going to get the rest of the message. Because the definition of a paradox, particularly from a biblical point of view, it is this. There are two apparent contradictions that conceal wonderful truth. Let me repeat this. Two apparent contradictions that conceal profound truth. Can you say that with me? Two apparent contradictions that conceal profound truth. And as I said, the Bible is full of them. The Christian faith is filled with paradoxes. And that is why often non-believers, people who are critics of the Bible, people who are critics of Christianity, most of them actually have never read the Bible, but they criticize it nonetheless. They're expert in criticizing the Bible. They say, well, the Bible is filled with contradictions. The Christian faith is filled with contradictions. Well, to a certain degree, they're right. Here's the problem. (laughs) They never bother to understand the profound truth that is concealed inside these two opposites. If there is a mystery, and I don't believe there is a mystery in the gospel, but if there is a mystery to those who are non-believers about the Christian faith, is that they cannot comprehend these wonderful paradoxes. They cannot understand until their eyes, spiritual eyes are open, these profound truths that are found in these biblical paradoxes. And this is why often non-believers look at Christians as weird. Have you ever heard that? Odd. Sometimes even absurd. This is precisely because we embrace these biblical paradoxes. We believe those biblical. We embrace the wonderful, profound truth in these paradoxes. As a matter of fact, embracing and practicing these biblical paradoxes is what makes a genuine believer a believer. That is... uh, my absolute conviction that is accepting and practicing of these paradoxes is the clearest indication and a proof that a person is a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. You say, why? Well, because we acknowledge through these paradoxes that God's ways are much higher than our mathematical formulas. That is, God's ways are far greater than our human logic, that God's ways are beyond our control. And that's what makes a believer in Jesus Christ to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Accepting these paradoxes, we declare that God is God, 
and we are not. <laughs> now today, there are all sorts of people who claim to be Christians, and I have met some, and when you start digging deeper, the understanding of what the Christian faith is so shallow. In reality, only those who have accepted and practiced in life those paradoxes are genuine believers. Beloved, listen to me. That is why the Christian faith is so unique. Um, and some false theologians and false teachers and false preachers deny these truths. The Christian faith is unlike any other religion or any other faith. For only the Christian faith teaches that we can see the unseen, that we can only conquer by yielding, that we can only find rest under a yoke, that we can only find power in servanthood, that we can only become great by lowering ourselves, that we can only be exalted by humbling ourselves, that we can only be wise by being fools for Jesus Christ, that we can only be free by becoming bond servants of Jesus Christ, that we can possess all things by having nothing, that we can get by giving, that we can only be strong by being weak, that we can only triumph by surrender that we can only find victory by glorying in our infirmities, that we can only truly live by dying to self. Did you get the point? You want me to keep on? But I think you get the point. I'm coming back again and again. Don't, don't worry. In fact, that's what Jesus said in, in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 24. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, that's Jesus' sake, will save it eternally. This is a paradox of paradoxes. This is a paradox that you can never find in any other religion. And all those uh, poor Saps, who says all religions are the same, all religions lead to the same way. And I said, no, 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 no. We have paradoxes in our faith. Certainly, you cannot find it in this rampant, uh, militant, secular movement that seems to be drowning Western civilization today. But in this Advent season, there can be no greater paradox than that of Christmas. No greater paradox than in the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to explain this to you, I need to give you just historical background. Very short. This is not going to be a boring history lesson or lecture. No, 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 no. You're going to be excited. I hope you're going to be shouting by the end of the sermon. You see, during the time of the birth of Jesus, Caesar Augustus reigned supreme. He reigned supreme over the Roman Empire. He became supreme ruler, supreme dictator, uh, after 20 years of bloody civil war. During that 20 years of civil war, there was carnage that was created through assassination and destruction of all of his enemies. Augustus Caesar became the only supreme, undisputed power and ruler of Rome. 
through his tyranny, he brought glory and splendor to the Roman Empire. That empire stretched across the known world at the time. It doesn't mean that there were not other civilizations, other worlds, but this was the, the known world at the time. This is where the focus of all of history was there at that time. And Dr. Luke, being a physician, uh, being a, a, a scientist, he absolutely left nothing to the imagination. He took care of the details. And in focusing on the details of the birth of Jesus, uh, he wants us to understand the context in which Jesus was born, which is a great paradox. So he tells us that at the height of the ruling of this supreme dictator upon this whole large swath of the earth, wielding total power, total control, there was an obscure and a humble babe born in, a, in Bethlehem of Judea. The contrast between Augustus Caesar and Jesus Christ could not, could not, could not, could not be overlooked. Amen? Augustus at the height of power, Jesus in the depths of helplessness. Caesar Augustus was the richest man on earth. Jesus was the poorest. Caesar Augustus uh, sleeping in Rome on a golden bed covered with fine linen sheets while Jesus was covered with rags. Augustus Caesar was surrounded by attending servants. Jesus was surrounded by dumb sheep. Uh, Augustus Caesar was protected by uh, the Praetorian Guard and the Roman Legion. Jesus laid helplessly in an animal feeding trough. The contrast is astounding. It's astounding. And yet Jesus descended from the height of the universal glory to the lowest of the law. Ah, oh, but he did this so that he may raise everyone who believes in him, everyone who surrendered to his authority, to raise him from the lowly sinful condition to the height of his glory. Amen? The Word of God tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. I was looking back, and I saw I preached a couple of times from that verse, but never about Christmas, which is really is a Christmas text. But I preached about it in different contexts, different, uh, different topics. And that's my text for the day. Turn to it, please, page 1802 in the Pew Bible. 1802 in the Pew Bible. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying to us, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and yet for your sakes he became poor. And the first question that comes to mind is why? Why? So that you, through his poverty, Paul said, become rich. Beloved, Jesus underwent human birth so that all who place their faith in Him alone, as their Savior alone, as the Lord alone, can undergo spiritual rebirth. Jesus, 
for whom there was no room in the inn. Yet He promised for everyone who believes in Him, everyone who trusts Him, everyone who receives Him as Savior and Lord, that there will be plenty of mansions for them in His Father's house. Jesus became a member of the human race so that we who love Him can become members of the heavenly race. Jesus made Himself subject to others so that those of us who love Him through the power of the Holy Spirit be set free. Jesus, although being by His very nature God, He did not consider that to be something uh, to grasp and hold of and, and, and refuse to come to earth and, and stays equal to the Father. But He did not see that as something to grasp, grab onto. Uh, although He never gave up the, the, His divinity, that was never given up. It's only the splendor, only the manifestation of His glory that He laid aside in order to come to identify with us. Listen to what the Word of God says about Jesus. When He, the chief shepherd of the sheep, appears, we will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, I'm getting ready to shout because I know what I'm going to say. Now, if you know what I'm going to say, you shout too. <laughs> Jesus put aside the manifestation of His splendor and glory for a time so that we who love Him may receive His glory forever. Jesus, in the day of His earthly ministry, He had nowhere to sleep uh, so that we may become rich in inheriting everything that He inherits. Jesus was welcomed to earth, the earth which He made. He was welcomed to earth by poor shepherds, poor and humble shepherds, so that we who love Him may be welcomed by His mighty angels in heaven. For Jesus Himself said that there is more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. There is a great party in heaven when one sinner comes to Christ. You know, I was talking the other day with one of my neighbors, lovely man, great man, and I was talking to him, and he looked at me, and he said, I'm sure you probably think that I'm a great sinner. I looked at him, and I said, you couldn't be bigger sinner than me. Now, imagine that in my secular mind. <laughs> I mean, he looked at me as if he said, did I make a mistake about this guy? Did I think he's a man of the cloth? Did I think he's a clergyman? <laughs> and he literally, eyes were popping out of his head as he shocked and looked at me. And I said, Bill, we both are sinners, except that I know that I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior to save me from my sin. You haven't made that decision yet. <laughs> you are concerned about what I think of you instead of you concerned about what God thinks of you. You have not come to that point yet. <laughs> if you have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, listen to me. Whether you're watching around the world, whether you're in this place, uh, if you have never received from His hands the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, <laughs> uh, but if you come to Him today, if you decide to come to Him today because you recognize that you're a sinner and nobody can ever deliver you from your sin except the one who died for you, the Bible said there's going to be a celebration. There's a big party in heaven where the angels were celebrating. 
the baby Jesus was pursued by an evil, wicked, ruthless King Herod, senseless killing of babies. And yet Jesus himself came from heaven to pursue and destroy the source of all evil, Satan himself. And I haven't even started yet. I haven't even started yet. I just gave you a summary. But beloved, please listen to me. Please listen to me. At this Christmas season, at this Christmas season, don't get me distracted with all the stuff. If you begin to focus and ponder and meditate about the paradox of Christmas, you too will shout, I don't care what a, f- a frozen chosen you may be, I don't care what a Presbyterian freezer you've been in, you'll become a Pentecostal. You will shout. Amen. Amen. For this, my beloved friends, is the wonder of Christmas. This hallmark stuff about the Christmas spirit and the Christmas miracles and all this make-belief stuff, God bless them, that's fine. But listen to me. (laughs) To some people, this paradox of Christmas is offensive. It really is. I've talked to enough people to know this. You say, how did Jesus, whom you claim to be God of very God, endured human birth in order to give his followers spiritual birth? How come this Jesus, who is God of very God, occupied a stable so that we may occupy a mansion? How did Jesus, who is God of very God, had an earthly mother so that we may have a heavenly father? How did Jesus, who is God of very God, subjected himself so that we may be set free from sin and condemnation? How did Jesus, who is God of very God, forsakes his glory for a time in order that he may share that glory with us forever? How did Jesus, who is God of very God, become poor so that we might become spiritually rich? How was this Jesus, who is God of very God, only was welcomed by the poor, desperate shepherd so that we may be welcomed by his powerful angels? How come this Jesus, who is God of very God, was hunted down by King Herod so that we may be delivered from being hunted down by Satan himself. This, my beloved friend, is the paradox of Christmas. Give God praise. Give him praise. Me, clap for him. And I, you can literally delight yourself in that this Christmas season. That's the joy of Christmas. That's the delight of Christmas. And God bless all of the ho-ho-hos and Christmas cheers <laughs> and all that stuff. That's not the paradox of Christmas. Your true Christmas blessing, my true Christmas blessing, is in our reveling and delighting ourselves of what cost Jesus to make Christmas be Christmas. Christmas was never about gifts and 
sales and discounts and bargain prices. No, the paradox of Christmas is about the incalculable price that was paid by God's own Son so that whomsoever, 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 whomsoever will come to Him in repentance and faith will receive forgiveness and eternal life. I think most of you would agree. I don't want to assume, but I think most of you would agree that if you look around, and you just look around, among your co-workers, your neighbors, people, really they're just living. They really are. They're just living. And you watch them. I was talking to a neighbor just this really a couple of weeks ago. He's not doing well physically. He's on a walker. And I stopped to talk to him. I said, how are you? He said, well, I'm just trying to prolong my life one day at a time. I want to weep for him because I already shared Christ with him. (laughs) Beloved, you must understand that only those who live and practice the paradox of Christmas do have real life. Only those who live and practice the paradox of Christmas have the peace of God because they have peace with God. Only those who, have, who, who can rejoice and every day in the paradox of Christmas will know that they, whether live or die, they belong to Christ. Uh, the, only those who understand and practice and live the paradox of Christmas under, live in joy, w- whether they have uh, little or abundance, whether they have joy or sorrow, whether they have good health or poor health, whether they are experiencing acceptance by people or rejection, whether they are loved or hated, we live and love because of the paradox of Christmas. Now, now I come to the end of the introduction. I'll get to the message. Most of you know, I always get to the message. They tell you in seminary that unless you have three points on a poem, you don't know how to preach. I never have a poem. I'm not very poetic. But I have three points. I always have three points. And the three lessons that this paradox of Christmas teaches us is first, don't judge by appearance. Don't judge by appearance. And secondly, it teaches us not to judge the end of things by their beginning. And thirdly, write them down, thirdly, the paradox of Christmas teaches us to make room for others in our lives. Let's look through those very quickly, very quickly. I won't take long. First of all, don't judge by appearance. The first we hear about this in the Old Testament when Samuel looked at the children of Jesse, the big, the tall, the educated, the, the, the impressive people, and God said, no, 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 not him. But he's got a Harvard MBA. Uh-uh, not him. Uh, but this guy, this guy graduated from uh, uh, Ivy League. Oh, no, no, not him. And then he gets to, he said, is that all? He said, no, no, no. He said, um, we've got a shepherd boy, but he's, he's just a little shepherd boy. And God said, don't judge by appearance, Samuel. Go and get that shepherd boy. Then I'd be King David. That's the first time we hear the Bible say, don't judge by appearance. I have heard people, I mean well-meaning people, I'm not talking about well-meaning people, all they think of, all they talk about, all they comment on is the appearance. 
the appearance. Beloved, don't be easily impressed by people who have power and fame and good looks. Caesar was the most powerful man alive, but God came as a babe in the manger. Don't be impressed by what impresses the world. The world is impressed and they applause the superstars and the celebrities. But if the paradox of Christmas teaches us anything, it teaches us that God can choose to hide His greatest gift in the poorest of packages. He wrapped His one and only Son in a manger so that you focus on the paradox of Christmas, and as you do that, don't judge by appearance. Secondly, don't judge the end of things by its beginning. In fact, the Bible said, do not despise the day of small things. Don't despise the day of small things. The beginning of Jesus' earthly visit has never been covered by the news media of the day. <laughs> I bet today, for some way or the other, in one way or the other, the whole world is celebrating His birth. But that's nothing. That's really nothing yet. Because at the end of things, and at the end of time, when Jesus is revealed in His glorious splendor and majesty, the whole world, in fact, uh, will fall on their faces at His feet. At the end of time, the whole world will recognize that Jesus is the only Lord, that Jesus is the only Savior, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And they will be weeping and gnashing their teeth over the, their foolishness of rejecting Him. At the end of time, the Bible said that every knee shall bow and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the end of time, the whole world will hear the angels of heaven singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. At the end of time, there's going to be uh, no greater glory than that of Jesus. No greater exaltation than that of Jesus. No greater splendor than that of Jesus. Nothing in the whole universe can be compared with the splendor and the majesty of the coming Jesus. But you would never anticipate this if you only judge Jesus by His beginning in Bethlehem of Judea. You wouldn't have guessed it. I know some of you might be puzzled right now in your circumstances. Some of you are disappointed right now in what's happening in your circumstances, your personal circumstances, your current circumstances. Some of you might be even fearful. Some of you might be perplexed. Some of you, you look at your situation and you're disappointed and you're despondent. Please, please, please don't judge the end of things by the beginning. God has not finished with you yet. I want you to, I'm going to change this because I want you to say it with me, and I hope you're going to say it with spirit. God has not finished with me yet. Let's do that. God, now when you say that, I want you to point to yourself. God has not finished with me yet. Amen. Amen. 
words. <laughs> amen and amen and amen. Don't judge by appearance. Don't judge the end of things by the beginning of things. Thirdly, don't fail to make a room in your heart for others. For that's the way, and maybe the only way to know that you already have made room for Jesus. John said, how can you say you love Jesus when you don't love the brethren? Make room for those who are suffering and persecuted. I just heard this morning in the news, Christians went to church in Pakistan, and the church was bombed, and they all died. I know they've gone to glory. Listen, make room for the persecuted. Make room for the, for, the, for, for the suffering believers. Make room for those who are lost and dying in sin. Make room for those who are desperately in need to hear the good news of Jesus. For they desperately need to hear that Jesus saves repentant sinners, that Jesus forgives repentant sinners, that Jesus loves repentant sinners, that Jesus welcomes repentant sinners, that Jesus loves to fill empty hearts, that Jesus, the greatest companion, is for all the lonely hearts, even today. Jesus, men's broken hearts. And whatever you are, and whatever circumstances you are in, only God knows that, and you know that. Jesus can touch you with his transforming touch. But also, he touches others through his obedient children. He touched them through his obedient children. You, and you, and you, and me. For we too were once strangers and aliens from God. We too were once at enmity with God. We too once were cut off from the commonwealth of God. We too were living in sin. We too were covered by guilt and shame. We too were dead in our trespasses and sin. And somebody told us about Jesus. Somebody told me about Jesus. And he told me that if I come under his authority, I will be in a loving relationship with him. And my life has never been the same. Thousands of you would testify to that. Well, the least you could do is you bring them with you at Christmas Eve service to hear the gospel message. The least, the least you could do. Give them the chance to hear. And let God do the rest. I never worry about results. I really don't. I never worry about results because that's God's business. I come in and give him the small things that I have. And he does the rest. They brought him few loaves and fishes, and he fed 5,000. Moses had a stick in his hand, and God said, strike it down. And the Red Sea got wide open. You bring to him whatever little you can, and he is going to do the rest. Amen? Amen? Amen. He will bless others by our obedience. Father, May we let those words from your holy scripture penetrate deep, deep 
deep, not only in our hearts and emotions, but in our intellect and our minds. Father, that we literally be instrument in transforming the world for Jesus. Lord, there are people out there who are desperate, even though they might not confess it, they might not admit it. We're looking at the statistics in the West of teenage suicide and all the stuff that's going on, and Lord, we know people are desperate. And I pray that each one of us, every one of us, the speaker and the listeners, Father, that we would give them the water of life, the word of life, that we would never hesitate of telling them the greatest, about the greatest treasure that we have discovered in Jesus, the peace of God and the peace with God. Father, I pray that today will be a day of action and not a, another day for warming the pews in the church. I pray this in Jesus' name and in His mighty power. Amen and amen and amen. Stand up and sing and prepare your hearts for the Lord's table.